Welcome to this week's edition of the Vasey View. This is my regular podcast where I explore the links between tech and public policy. And I sometimes go on tour. I go on virtual tours. I've been to France. I've been to Estonia. I've been to Holland. I've been to Israel, looking at how these countries put together their tech policies. And sometimes I take a deep dive into a sector like agritech or cybersecurity. And sometimes I talk to big picture policy thinkers like Benedict Evans or Tony Blair or Malcolm Turnbull. And I guess I think this falls into that category, but it's also part of my new pivot, which is towards becoming a sort of a book club as well, because uh, I'm now doing a few podcasts in the Basie View with people who have just published books as well, which give us, us a great focus to talk about the nexus between tech and public policy. So my guest today is Matthew Barson, calling in from Kentucky. So we are going global. Now, Matthew, I got to know when he was the US ambassador to the UK. I'm actually a dual national, so he was kind of my ambassador as well. If I ever got arrested by the police, I guess I could have called uh, Matthew to bail me out. Uh, he was a fantastic uh, ambassador under President Obama in President Obama's second term. And the home of the US ambassador became a great salon for politicians and creative people and business people to meet together to discuss things. Needless to say, I've never been invited back since the era of President Trump, but maybe that'll change under President Biden. But he wasn't just an ambassador. He also made his name by being a fantastic fundraiser for President Obama in the run-up to President Obama's first term and then carrying on, obviously, to the second term as well. And before that, he was a successful tech entrepreneur working for a company called Steenet, one of the first employees of a company that became very, very successful. But Matthew has just published a book. So that's what I mean about the book club. It's called The Power of Giving Away Power. It's been published in the US and the UK. And it's an exploration of a new kind of leadership. So that's what I want to dive into. But I also want to obviously steer Matthew ever so gently as the conversation progresses towards implications for tech and how tech is perhaps changing leadership. So Matthew, welcome. Oh, excellent. Thank you for that wonderful uh, introduction. It is good to be virtually back together. So you're in a uh, an office because I think your house has been struck by lightning. Is that a new kind of leadership? Yeah, maybe. I mean, it, it, no one was hurt. Because in fact, on the, front, on the front cover of your book is a sort of nod to God. So the hand of God has actually touched your house. The not-so-subtle tweaking of Michelangelo. It's always good to mess with Michelangelo's art, which is what we did there on the cover. No, but Ed, it is weird that I use the word power twice in a title. And that is a word that during my time at diplomacy and business and politics that you just outlined in your introduction, I studiously avoided ever using that word in those roles, just because I think it is so, it's so kind of loaded and so often negatively loaded. But I've come to understand that what the book kind of gets into is there are alternate ways of thinking about power that could be really, really productive and I think can help heal uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. It's a great exposition of a new form of how to lead, as it were, because it, 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 and the paradox there is also that it's not necessarily about what we traditionally view as leadership, which is top-down leadership and command and control. One of my most successful podcasts, actually, with respect to all my other guests, was with a guy called Will Page, where we talked about the music industry. And the reason it was successful was because the book that he's published is 
full of cracking anecdotes. And I've got to say, Matthew, that one of the great things about this book is it's full of fantastic stories, not necessarily all anecdotes about your time, but great historical references to long forgotten but important figures. But I, So I wanted to sort of dive straight in, having sort of given a brief overview of your career, and we'll come back to it during the podcast. The thesis at the beginning, it's all based on the US Great Seal. And for those of us listening to the podcast in the States and sitting down, take out a dollar bill as well, because it will help you understand what Matthew's about to tell us about the difference between pyramid power and constellation power. Talk us through it. I'm mindful that, you know, we are in a, uh, we're in audio here, and this is a visual story, but the, the dollar bill is helpful for the reason you said, because it has uh, both sides of it. And, and it was famously July 4th, 1776. There were two declarations made right? Not just the famous Declaration of Independence. The founders on that day also declared in a move familiar to startups everywhere, uh, we need a logo, right? So they set at it and that logo became what we call uh, the Great Seal of the United States, which was going to have two sides. But it took longer to design that logo than it did to win the war. Yeah. And I got super deep into this story and I'll, I will go deep now because I don't think we have time. But in a nutshell, early on, they settled on, okay, for the back, they'll have a symbol. And it ended up being that pyramid with the little funny mini pyramid with the all-seeing eye on top. And for the front of the seal, they're like, we'll have this American eagle, we'll have a shield, there'll be uh, things in the eagle's uh, talons, you have olive branches, and you have uh, arrows, all that kind of stuff, right? So they got that, and then they got the motto, and the motto is important. And the motto they came to early, which is e pluribus unum, from many one, or out of many one. But there was a formula back then for these sorts of things from you guys. We were winning our independence, but the whole heraldry thing, right? We took quite seriously with the people they brought in to help with this. And part of the formula was, yes, you needed a motto, but you, all need, you always needed something that they called a crest, which was supposed to symbolize, it would go over the eagle's head and it would symbolize the essence of the whole thing. And after seven years and three failed committees, the war is won and they finally picked the crest. And it was 13 asymmetrical stars with radiant light beaming out from behind it. And they called it the radiant constellation. And for them, it symbolized the essence of this American experiment. And this is why I think so important. They knew that any band of revolutionaries can declare independence, that the hard part and the more meaningful part is how are we gonna figure out this interdependence thing? How can we be separate states, but also be the United States? How can we be separate citizens, yet part of a community? At any scale, how could we be the United States with the community of nations? At any scale, global, national, or local, how could you be at once distinct as yourself and part of something larger? How could you be one and many at the same time? And the constellation, I argue, is exactly that symbol. And yet, we so often, like you said, when we think about power, we think about getting things done, we revert to what they put on the back, which is the pyramid, the world of up or down, in and out, winning, losing, ranking, rating, sifting, sorting. There's a time and place for that, for sure, like winning a war, let's say. But it shouldn't be at the front of our lives, which is, I think, where we keep putting it. So you started your career in tech almost by accident. I think you had a family member was starting a tech company and you were the sort of employee. And that's where you stayed until you kind of got involved with the Obama campaign. So tell me a bit about what you learned at CNET, because this must be where your thinking started on leadership. Sure. Well, I got, I mean, my wonderful cousin, Shelby Bonney, was one of the co-founders, brought me in early, right out of university. 
And I remember telling my mother and telling my roommates that I'm, you know, I was working at an internet company. And back in 1993, I mean, that didn't mean later, a couple of years later, that would be sort of a sexy thing to get into. But this was not back then. It was really early days. And it was amazing. And we were developing lots of things that are commonplace now, such as, so we were sort of like a computer magazine for online. And, you know, we'd review things like laptops and printers and stuff like that. And, and we had this idea of like, well, we should, what if you let the people who actually bought the ThinkPad laptop, they could write a review. And that was considered kind of heretical. It's like, no, no, we have experts for that. But we recognize, well, yeah, but sort of the magazines we're competing with, why don't we let real people? And it's like, well, we have no money to pay them. And we're like, well, I don't think they need to be paid. I think you could just if they're passionate about tech or if you're passionate about anything, you will contribute things without getting monetary reward if you feel that it counts and it's being useful. So we kind of tapped into that early. And in fact, you use a very, very well-known example of the power of community to illustrate your approach to leadership, which is Wikipedia, of course. Obviously, in terms of cracking anecdotes, the story of how encyclopedias came to be and how each business reached a certain point. So you had the Encyclopedia Britannica dominating, then you had Microsoft realizing that you could have an online encyclopedia. But then there's the light bulb moment, as it were, that emerges from Wikipedia, which goes to your thesis of leadership. Exactly. And, and so Microsoft and Harvard Business uh, Review wrote a case study of like, who won when the richest company took on the oldest company, Britannica versus Microsoft. And then they published it, I forget what year, like year 2000 or something. And it's before Wikipedia became a thing. So they declared Microsoft the winner by knockout. And then, of course, you know, within a matter of years, Microsoft, the richest company, is out of it. And with Encarta, which older people will remember that product, which the, the folks at Microsoft could see the power of digital compression. They could see the power of hyperlinking. They could see the power. They're really clever people. They could see the power of absolutely everything except for the power in you and me. But they, could, they just couldn't imagine what Jimmy Wales and his team at Wikipedia did, which was to allow non-experts to participate and to make this thing together. And the fun part, and we don't probably have time to get into it, but what I think is even more telling is that at first, Jimmy and his team created something no one's ever heard of. And it was a total failure called Newpedia. Uh, and Newpedia existed for one year. And it was just like the Wikipedia you know, except they relied on solitary people. They just still didn't pay them anything. But you would submit a whole article and then it would go through a 10-step peer review process like an academic journal because they were so paranoid of being not taken seriously because they were a bunch of, quote, nobodies. And they had only 18 articles published by the end of the first year. I mean, that's just not going to work if you're up against Microsoft and Britannica. So someone on the team says to Jimmy Wales, hey, we should try this wiki thing, which would let Ed write a sentence, Matthew add to it, and write a few more, someone else not even write, but just be good at editing. And lo and behold, after the next year after that, 18,000 articles. And the rest is history, the largest human knowledge transfer engine, as someone once coined it, in the history of the world, all by giving away power. And exactly. And what is so fascinating about it is, is your line in the book, really, that we don't actually Google anything. We wiki things. Yeah, like a dinner table dispute. You say, oh, well, I'll Google it to settle the argument. But if you find some obscure blog at the end of your Google, at the beginning of your Google search, like that won't really settle the dispute. But usually Wikipedia pops up first. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's definitive enough. And there are mistakes there, but there were mistakes in Britannica and in Carta too, right? But this one at least is self-correcting. 
So I want to come back to Wikipedia in a moment because I think it does have some implications for public policy where public policy has tried this approach and not actually succeeded and how one can get over that because clearly the power of giving away power is a sentence that would resonate with any politician because politicians by definition are all about acquiring power. But I just want to slightly segue into politics by talking about your experience with Obama because again, this was a revelation that you had and that you drove, which is about Obama raising money from the many, small donations from many people, and also the army of volunteers that became his kind of feet on the ground who were motivated and how that came about. Yeah, I mean, so, so if you start with the second one, which is the field organizing, which I had nothing to do with except that I admired it and would pepper that wonderful team with questions to try to figure out what was the magic they were creating. And it tells the story of two amazing field organizers, Jeremy and Buffy, who are at the front lines of this campaign with this candidate no one's really heard of up against the Clinton political machine, right, which was dominant. And they basically ask headquarters like, hey, I don't think there's any way we can possibly prevail doing things the way we're doing it now, which is a tiny, a few paid staffers. He's like, we're getting both of them. We're seeing one in California, one in South Carolina, overwhelmed with volunteer support. And in politics, often volunteers, everyone says nice things about them, but they can be annoying. It's sort of like having interns at work. They could be great, or they could just create a whole bunch of work and no one knows what to do with them. So Jeremy Buffett was like, look, we need to treat these volunteers. These are wonderful people, retired school teachers, you know, young and old. We think they're work. We should just treat them like they're full-time employees and trust them. And that was a huge leap of faith because you'd give them access to the voter file, which is kind of geeky for this discussion, but that's the, as you know, from your political world, I mean, that's the keys to the kingdom. And I think the, the, the main campaign in Chicago initially said, no, I mean, look, there could be spies from rival campaigns. And then Jeremy and Buffy were like, well, I can't promise you there won't be, but I can promise you that most of these people aren't spies and will work really hard. And I don't see what our alternative is. So they gave away power to these amazing super volunteers around the country. And it made a huge, a huge difference on election day. But when you held rallies for Obama, there's a great story in the book about the dilemma the Obama, administra- uh, the Obama team has between going to your super fundraiser, a few individuals writing large checks, or the mass fundraiser, many individuals writing smaller checks. I know. And, and it's, um, you're right, you asked about that. I forgot that one. That's the one I was more directly involved in. And Again, it gets back to the pyramid. I mean, if if you're at a nonprofit institution, museum, library, whatever, almost all fundraising meetings starts with people literally drawing a pyramid. And it's like hyper wealthy at the top, mega wealthy below. And you can just picture it, right? And then at the quote bottom of the pyramid, they do the Friends of the Library campaign. And and I think politics in, in in the States had a similar thing where low dollar fundraising was not new. They would just sort of do it at the end and do it online which had nothing to do with the face-to-face tables of people involved early for the high dollar. And I just thought to myself, well, wait a minute. I was seeing what was happening on field organizing, Jeremy and Buffy listening to those stories. Why don't we treat fundraising more like field organizing? Why don't we bring super volunteers in early? Why would you only bring in really rich people who can afford $1,000 a plate? Why don't you let people at $20 not give anonymously online late? Sure, they can do that get involved with other people early on. And so initially the campaign said no, then they said yes, and then we ran with that model. So all of this Wikipedia, CNET, and 
Obama fundraising is about empowering people. So it's about getting to your goal, making things happen by allowing individuals to really feel, and it's true, that their contribution counts. People will spend hours editing a Wikipedia page because they know it counts. People will spend hours pounding the streets because they know they're making a big difference. And it's so interesting, if you think about the, the Wikipedia folks, I think tried, and I don't know where it is, I don't think it really took off. They, they tried a, a news service, the Wiki Journal. do you remember what it was called? I do, yeah. And, and I remember talking to someone who was involved and they said, well, the difference is, and why it didn't work the way Wikipedia did. And to your point, a Wikipedia article for those working on it at any level, really intensely or just a little, there's a sense that a, it is collaborative. More than one person can create it. And if you get a good Wikipedia article created on, let's say, a, a lost person that you think is lost to history and deserves to be rediscovered, that counts and it will kind of last forever. And there's something about news that just isn't like that. It's sort of more solitary to create. And the perception is old news is old news. It doesn't last forever. It's true. And I think some of the other things the Wiki team have tried, like a, a kind of version of Twitter, WT Social, they call it, has not really worked funny enough because they seem to be sort of trying to use the top-down model. But I just want to finish with your career before we talk about the bigger implications. Your third iteration as um, a US ambassador. I forgot to mention you also uh, were in Sweden before you came to the UK. But again, I think there's the other aspect of your thesis on leadership, which is about listening. So you mm. made sure you not only listened to the people you worked with in the embassy, but also you kind of did the thing of putting your guitar in the back of the van and getting on the road. I wish I could sing because that would really, that's what I would have done. If I had a shred of talent, I would have been busking all around the UK. The British press would have shredded you. Yeah, well, uh, they had their fun anyway. So instead of busking, I went out to, by the end, 200 different, mostly sixth form colleges, did these sessions with 100 students at a time where I'd give them a, an A5 blank card and a pencil from the embassy. And I'd say, please draw me a picture or write a word of something that frustrates you about America or confuses you. So we'd do that and we'd spend you know, the bulk of our hour talking about frustrations. And then we'd flip it over and last five minutes, the happy bit, write one word or draw one picture of something that gives you hope or inspires you about America. So I learned a lot. I mean, number one frustration by far, guns, followed by police brutality and racism, right? So I would tell my colleagues at the State Department and the Secretary of State and President Obama when he visited, we're all trained up to talk about foreign policy, Israel, Palestine, or drones, the Iran deal. I mean, that's kind of what we do as diplomats, and, and which is important work uh, and important discussions. But these young people, our domestic policy is foreign policy. So that was a big realization that I got from, from listening. And what did you get from listening to your colleagues at the embassy? I had success with the blank A5 cards with the students. So I figured, well, let's try to do that with our senior team as well. And it's a wonderful group. By the time they get to London, they've had these amazing careers, these foreign service officers. They've spent their whole careers rotating every three years, as you know, all around the world. And I said, okay, slightly different exercise. I was like, can you draw for me what a frustrating, bad day in your job is like? And then it was really nervous. They're like, that's weird. We don't do that. I was like, I know. You don't have to be a good artist. I'm not. And so they all drew. And then I would say, flip it over and draw what a good day looks like. But I, I made them draw. I wouldn't let them use words because foreign service officers are, by and large, very good writers, which is a gift. But I wanted to get them out of their comfort zone. 
and doing something that just get them to open up a little bit more by drawing badly like I was. And what was unbelievable about it was every single, they're all different, but what they all had in common was a big pyramid, a triangle. And sometimes the top of the pyramid would be called DC or it would be called Main State or it would be called White House. It didn't matter. But they were almost always, they were just things, rocks, sometimes boulders, sometimes arrows, just stuff coming down from on high as they try to get up that mountain, get up that pyramid. That's what a bad day. And I think we can all relate to what that feels like. And then on the happy side, it was wildly different, you know, how that side looked. So that to me, again, was reinforcing of why do we do this to each other? We all know that feeling. How did you try and change things then in terms of your leadership style as an ambassador? I mean, I tried it first in Sweden and Sweden was an amazing chapter and you know that country well too. And we had had this perception in it. It was no one's fault really, but after the bombings in Africa and then 9-11, we ended up making these buildings look like fortresses and really were just sending the, the sort of the body language of those buildings, even though they were beautiful way back, just became to look like prisons. And so I said, well, we should just, we'd be sort of cloistered within them. So I, in Sweden, did this fun thing that many on the team were skeptical about fairly, but I did the U.S. Embassy Roadshow and we'd take an American, I think it was like a hybrid pickup truck and we'd drive it to these, what are called second tier cities. And I, I, I don't love that term, but I live in one. I mean, I live in Louisville, Kentucky, and I know that we're not second tier, we're just not huge. But we really appreciate it when people come and visit us. And we have an interesting mix of people. So I knew that was true of cities that weren't Stockholm. And London has the same issue, that it is political capital, cultural capital, financial capital. Stockholm's the same way. And you get all those things in one place. Everyone else can feel kind of disempowered. So we'd go to these places like Umeå, way up north. We'd roll out a red carpet. We'd cook pancakes. And we'd set up a little embassy in a box to just literally, very sort of not subtly, just be an open door. Like, please come, learn about travel, learn about studying in America, learning about being a camp counselor, whatever it was. And just to try to practice the body language and language of being open. And I ended up summing it up for the team. And, and I said to my team, I said, look, there are a bunch of, like, if you think this is stupid and silly, no harm, no foul, stay here in the, in the main embassy and do your important work. But if you are open to this kind of thing and you think you might want to go learn, uh, by all means, do it. And I summed it up, and I don't know if this is going to work on a podcast, but these are four things that I tried to bring to every encounter, and I tried to encourage my team to do. And it'll spell the word also. And it is ask about people's hopes and fears. Listen, so that's the A. L is like, listen to what they say and link it to your own hopes and fears. And then S is serve that overlap, serve that common area of frustration or confusion or whatever it might be. And then the final thing, the O is like, open up, do so honestly. So ask, listen, serve, open up. And I contrasted that. That's all, when I write it, it's all kind of lowercase. Just like those aren't big, dramatic, all caps kind of things. And I said, but you as senior leaders in the Foreign Service and all of us are really often encouraged under the banner of leadership to do a different also, you know, argue lecture, <laughs> strategize, and organize, right? And we've all gotten kind of good at it. I mean, you saw this. In, in, mm. And I was like, I know. I mean, we're all good at arguing, but how many people like to lose an argument? I mean, ask 10 people, ask 100 people. No one likes to lose an argument. So why are we spending so much time and energy and training our young to be argument winners? 
it, I think it's really bad math. I, I agree with you. I mean, I think, I mean, we had uh, Narina Hertz on the podcast and her book about loneliness in the 21st century. And she makes the point about people with extreme political views, you bring them together with people with different views and you get them in a dialogue and things start to change. I mean, a lot of this is about your kind of leadership, constellation leadership is about ending isolation, which the pyramid kind of reinforces. You know, you're at the top, other people yeah. at the bottom, and you're isolated from each other, whereas the constellation, you have to have a kind of dialogue. Exactly. And I think what, what in, in my talking about the book for the last week or so, there, there's a common misperception, which you're not doing, but I think it sort of comes to mind when you're talking about this, which is, oh, okay, we've all gotten a memo that top down is not good for the reasons you said, then I think lots of us are like, I know, bottom up, right? It's like, but I was like, no, 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 bottom up feels better for like a second. It is just as bad, or I should say no better, because in a bottom up view of the world, you are either, you're forced to either look at people around you as beneath you, or look at people around you as above you, and you're at the bottom. In neither of those scenarios is that very empowering. It does weird things to you to think of others at the bottom. So you have not escaped the pyramid. If you go bottom up, you have reinforced that exact same shape just in reverse order. And so if you really do escape the pyramid, and this gets to, to your loneliness point, what many people like about the reassuring parts of top down or bottom up is like, well, at least there's stability and shape, right? And some kind of order in a pyramid, even if it isn't ideal. And they think that the contrast is you're totally on your own which we know where that leads to your point, to alienation, to loneliness, to being really, really suspicious of one another. And what the constellation provides us as an image is an alternative. There is order and stability of a different type within a constellation. And, and here's the really important part, because I, as a sort of progressive Democrat back home in America, people will think, my friends who are Republicans or independents, you know, they'll be like, oh, I know, this is some big group hub. <laughs> this is some big, you know, and I was like, no, no, no. I mean, nothing wrong with group hugs, but this is not what the constellation is. In the constellation, you stand out as an individual with your unique identity. You do not lose yourself or get absorbed into the whole. It is not a collective. Total togetherness is not what we're after, I don't think. It is you are truly distinct as a star, but you look at everyone around you as a star and try to make useful connections between them that you could never do on your own. And, and the technical word which turns some people off is interdependence, right? I mean, that is the thing. That word just has a lot of ghosts. I mean, I love the word. But how do you react to that word interdependence? What does it connote for you? I uh, have a relatively neutral view of interdependence. It's not a word actually we tend to use in, um, in the UK a lot. It's not a word that I would use a lot. Uh, mutual dependence, I don't have a problem with. Okay. And mutual is a, is a good word. And it's that, that, I mean, here we are in the UK. It's the lesson that Jimmy Carr taught me at a, when I first met him. And... Uh, Jimmy Carr being a well-known UK comedian for our US listeners. Yes, who is hilarious. And I tried to describe, I told one of his jokes the other day, uh, not on a podcast, just to give you a flavor for his kind of humor, which is really edgy, as you know. And, and, and my lovely <laughs> wife, who loves Jimmy, was like, don't say that again. You know, but anyway, he's great. So I asked Jimmy when I first met him. I was like, I've never met a stand-up comedian, but I watched tons of comedy. And I said, hey, if you're trying out 10 new jokes in Leeds or Liverpool or something, you never do it in London, right? You start in places like Louisville, Leeds, whatever. And he's like, well, I'm pretty good now. And I was like, okay. He's like, I'll get, out of 10 jokes, three will get a laugh. I was like, that's fascinating. Like three in 10 is like really good for a comedian. But then what he said next was more interesting to me. He said, look, jokes, Matthew, are really strange things. If you put on a play and everyone walks out, it's still a play. 
we were talking about busking. You sing a song and nobody claps, still a song. If you tell a joke and no one laughs, it's just a sentence. It's not a joke at all. And what made me think of that was your point on the word mutual. And the lesson to me, and so I didn't know, if, I was like, Jimmy, did like Groucho Marx, did someone famous say that? He's like, no, no, I just said that. And I said, I'm going to tell everyone I meet forever that story because I think leadership is a joke in the Jimmy Carr sense, which is so much of it misses. So much of it is just a bunch of sentences said at people. And we'll get to tech in a moment, but many of these platforms are just sentence machines, right? And what happens in a joke, if Jimmy's right, and I think he is, the comedian does his or her part. The audience member does his or her part, but they make a joke together. But it is this mutual act that they do. So it isn't you, it isn't me, it's us together. Just for that little moment, they've made something together. And that's what we have to rediscover because we've kind of, I think, lost these habits of interdependence, of mutuality. I love that. I love that. I mean, I obviously read the anecdote in your book, but I'm also now going to dine out on it. We'll be in this parallel universe. I was just wondering whether... Jimmy will send us a bill later. What is the equivalent of laughter in leadership? Is that a line or is that genuine question from me oh that's a good one i might have to i'm gonna have to borrow that one i felt you sort of answered that the equivalent of laughter was mutual dependence uh, interdependence but is the i, I want to say that the equivalent of laughter is action but that sounds too top down yeah and I, i'm gonna have a um not a great word either these words have been so kind of dulled they've been sharpened and dulled at the same time um, words like network, which maybe we'll get into later with our tech discussion, which is kind of a beautiful word that I love, but it's been pretty ruined. So, you know, connection, engagement. I mean, those are words that come to my mind, but they've been a little bit dulled too. You talk about special relationships versus routine relationships uh, as another aspect of leadership, because obviously special relationship has a massive resonance between the UK and the US. There's not a single British politician that's not obsessed. Although I guess it's been in the news, I'm told in the last week because of President Biden coming to visit the UK. Of course. To the G7. And that, that so every once in a while, it gets retrotted out and, and made fun of. Yeah, we're all obsessed by the special relationship. But you are pro the special relationships in leadership. Yeah. As against routine relationships. Well, and, and then, yes, again, routine relationships. Or the if you picture one of these two by two grids with, you know, so picture the, the Northeast corner as special relationships. The exact opposite of special relationships is routine transactions, which we've all gotten pretty good. Like tech has enabled us in wonderful ways to just like avoid friction at all costs. Wish everyone you've ever met happy birthday without trying. You know what I mean? And so it like costs you nothing, but on the receiving end of it, it also kind of doesn't count for anything. So there's a catch and a cost, I think, to all of this routine transactions that we've let tech do for us. And we've appropriately gone to that lower left-hand quadrant because the world of special transactions and routine relationships, if you can keep up with the image, are so exhausting and so awful that of course we go, we just try to automate and replicate everything. But I think the phrase that Churchill used way back 1946 when he coined it in this context was about, no, 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 you need to go seek out friction, but make it fruitful. And that's what good relationships are like, a marriage, a friendship, you never solve it. You never win it. That's not the point. So let's pivot into tech because everything you're saying has big echoes with some of the thinking. And I've already referred to my podcast with Narina Hertz. And she uses very similar language to yours about tech removing friction, but it also removes the ability 
and the need for kind of human contact. And I want to think through with you, I'm thinking aloud here, so this could go anywhere, what your view on leadership means in a world of tech. There are two obvious things that come to mind for me. One is how politicians would screw up your thesis. So, for example, in the UK, we had a really successful government digital service, which did lots of things to make citizen transactions very easy. But we tried to be funky and we tried wiki legislation. So we get, the theory was you give away power and you put a piece of legislation online and anyone can come along and amend it. Obviously, not it won't become law, but they can amend it to make it better so that the powers that be can take on board the wiki amending. And that never took off. Nobody was in the slightest bit interested, probably because they thought, I can amend this bill, but nobody's going to listen. Whereas if you amend a Wikipedia page. But there's something in that. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. And also, we're struggling at the moment. The biggest tech political issue is social media regulation. And again, when you were talking about giving away power, it's something I think the platforms have missed. The ability, you know, when you were talking about people posting reviews on CNET and so on, the ability of social media could potentially self-regulate if the platforms were prepared to give away power to moderators, if you like. Yeah, it's so, look, I mean, this is, I'm so glad you're with your podcast, staying on top of and diving into this because this is so deep uh, and so important. And as someone who came up through that early internet stuff, I am such a, still a believer and I'm really hopeful that we can improve it. And, and I see, as you talk about the debate, I, I see it quickly and unsurprisingly go into the people sort of saying the end it group and then the defend it group. So it's like end it, defend it, end it, defend it. And we know this pattern of behavior across many topics, but it's certainly alive in the social media regulation thing. And the way I think about it, and this is, uh, this is going to rhyme for a reason. It's like, yeah, 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 I understand, you know, the end it crowd, defend it. How about we mend it? Right. And this is something that G.K. Chesterton, a great British author, said about 100 years ago. He's like, if you're in the mending business, you only mend things you love. And he had some weird example in his writing where he's like, look, you mend the wool sweater that your grandmother knit for you because it's getting frayed and you want it to continue. You don't mend a thumbscrew or a torture device. You know, that was his weird analogy, which doesn't really work today. But anyway, <laughs> so this idea of mending and, and I think and you you were on the front lines of this. It's like. And I don't, I'm, th I'm thinking out loud, tell me if this is true, that you should, one should in our democracies really only allow, and it gets close to self-regulation, but that's not what I'm really saying. But you should only be engaged in mending something if you love it. Really try to think it through, which I'd love to do with you, is, well, okay, you take an issue like gun control, right, or gun, gun safety in America, which is a crucial thing. I mean, we have 30,000 people dying every year, 20,000 by um, and I got to know all this because of these young people telling me guns is their number one frustration. So I didn't know a lot about it. I live in, I grew up in Boston where almost no one I know has a gun. I live in Kentucky where almost everyone, you know, everyone I know does have a gun. And it's like, yeah. and they're wonderful, normal, great law abiding people. So I'd, I've learned a lot living in Kentucky than that sort of coastal view, which by the way, it's not even the words they say, it's the tone of voice in which they say them, that if you're sitting here in Kentucky, like people will say things like, well, why would you ever need more than one, right? And then someone will be like, well, why would you need more than one golf club? But if you're using these for hunting, there are different guns for different things. And I don't want to mindful of the British listeners not to get mired into a gun debate. But 
then it occurred to me, it's like, okay, well, we do need to do something because 10,000 people dying from someone else, 20,000 suicides every single year. You know, we've, we've brought auto fatalities way down and no one has given up driving. Couldn't we keep our second amendment and reduce gun violence? It seems like that's a Republicans and Democrats voters agree on that, but we just seem stuck. And so that's a tricky one. But I think if you bring love of the thing to the table, like it would be weird. I'll go, I'll go from guns to cricket. It would be weird if you talk to someone who spent their lives working on the laws of cricket, who hated the game of cricket. And if you take business regulation or tech regulation, and if at bottom, it's a bunch of people who like really hate business, who are trying to go change the rules of business, like how weird and how unproductive. But that can easily, I think, be misunderstood as like, oh, you know, let the foxes guard the hen house. That's not what I'm saying. Because then you get sort of tech leaders or business leaders being like, sounding like they don't want to have any rules governing it at all. And if you go back to cricket, it's like cricket would just be a bunch of people running around on a grass field if you didn't have rules. Mm -hmm. Rules are the whole thing that gives it structure and meaning. People engaging to amend and mend the rules of the game they love is what we need more of. Well, it's true, actually. And we use the word amendment. When we amend legislation, we're trying to amend it. And uh, I think you've found language that I love because it, to a certain extent, it was my approach as digital minister was to say, I love tech. There are problems with tech. Tech can solve those problems, but they need to listen to politicians who, to a certain extent, represent the public square. We're the elected guys who, in theory, represent public opinion. And you're right. I always ran straight into the brick wall of end it or defend it. And I was told, you're too stupid. You don't understand tech. What you're saying is ignorant and stupid. And I was saying, that's not the point. I'm saying that, you know, pile on racial abuse of black footballers is not acceptable. Can we do something to stop this? I wasn't saying, let's close down Twitter. They're two different arguments. But it is interesting how we are getting to a position where, and also I think the problem with government is that people assume that government is going to come up with a magic bullet. You know, this legislation we're debating at the moment, the online safety bill, people assume it'll get passed and all our problems will be over. When you still need a massive amount of self-help from the people who use the platforms and help from the people who run the platforms particularly in an age of technology. Well, and the other word that, you know, you were on both sides of this one in, in terms of this word that, that it's, this is not in the book, but it, I, I got cut out, but I loved it. There was a, um, I'm forgetting his name, that amazing man who, who ran the Finnish public school system, which is redundant because all, they're all government schools in Finland. But Finland wins best educated K through eight year olds every year. Occasionally Singapore wins and they come in second and then they win the following year, right? So he tells a story where, a bunch of New Yorker, a bunch of Americans bring him to New York, like, tell us your secret. And the first question they always had was like, tell me about, you know, charter schools or alternates. He's like, no, we don't have those. And then they're like, well, tell us about teacher accountability. You know, how do you hold teachers accountable for kids? And Finns speak great English, right? Like Swedes. And he said, I, I, I've, I've been asked this so much, I have come to learn what you mean, but we do not have a word <laughs> for accountability in Finnish. But I think I know what you Americans mean or you English speakers, let's Fred, because I think you all use that word a lot too. He's like, accountability is that thin thing you have left after you've removed responsibility. And I was like, ooh, that strikes me as so true. 
and think about it as being a government minister and hall. It, it's just sort of code for in the business context, how can I play gotcha, get you fired? In a political context, it's how do you play gotcha and haul you up in front of my committee and make you look stupid or so it's a thing. I'm not saying in our system it is a thing, it's just a thin and narrow thing. And the big and full thing, it's like grappa versus a glass of red wine or something. It's like responsibility is a full concept. And that's what I think, if you keep demanding accountability, the, the bigger and harder and more important thing to ask for is responsibility of these platforms. I think that's great. I mean, I, that's the point. And this is what I keep kind of banging on about, which is I think as we go down the road of legislation, the default position will be we are holding the platforms to account and we will lose sight of we are working with the platforms to support them being responsible. Yeah, like the body language of like account, it's just so... It itself, I was reading some wonderful article the other day of like someone bemoaning social media and it's like, look, it's much easier. I think he was an economist. He's like, it's just much easier to retweet and give a heart than it is to pick a fight with your own side and debate something, right? And so if you, if you characterize what he was saying, uh, it was Matt Iglesias, who's a great writer. And so it's either like it's thumbs up or in American, it's like a middle finger. Like, are those the only two gestures available <laughs> to us, right? Like awesome or screw you. How about a different of like two hands, you know, like, hey, what's the deal with that? What are we going to do about blank? Like, we got to figure this out together. So look, I've taken a lot of your time, Matthew, and I want to end on a lighter note. I want to ask you, obviously, look, I would love one day to be the US ambassador to the UK. You get a great house in a park. You get big cars to drive you around in. What was your, <laughs> just to show how traditional I am, what was your favorite there must be so many, and it's such an unfair question. Yeah. But four years in, in uh, Winfield House, what was your favorite? I mean, the, you know, I already talked about the, 20, the 200 schools and the 20,000 young people and listening to their frustrations and talking through it with them was absolutely the highlight. That's not technically Winfield House. Music. I mean, we, I love music. I have no musical talents, but using um, Winfield House for July 4th, every year and really opening it up and having members of our Young Leaders UK and just do a big, big, inclusive as we can party with awesome British and American live music. Duran Duran. Well, it's a huge highlight and maybe it's a good way to end it because it, it is fun. Like, so ambassadors, um, and you'll discover this when you become a US ambassador to wherever it might be. <laughs> and we host July 4th parties as you'd expect, you know, all around the world. And it's particularly potentially awkward with you lot, right? I mean, here yeah, we are exactly. in the UK celebrating uh, the national day, national day of mourning in the UK. Exactly. Or Thanksgiving, as someone joked about it, which is funny. But anyway, so I would, so I'd have to go and say a few words to all these wonderful Brits and Americans assembled on the lawn. And I really did mean it. I don't know if it landed, but I want to close here with it, which is like, we celebrate Independence Day, which is important. What we should also celebrate, and we don't, because I really do believe that any band of revolutionaries can declare independence. The hard work that we have been engaged on, and we have fallen way, way short as a country, but the best idea America had, and the best idea America has, is interdependence. How states can get along with one another to be part of the same country, like we talked about. How individuals can be totally distinct, yet part of something bigger. How the US, we're about to see it in the G7, can join with other allies, keep its national sovereignty, and be more effective than it could alone. At any and every scale, it is the habits of interdependence that are the key. And we have sadly lost 
those habits and we need to start rediscovering them so we can start to mend the 21st century together. Thank you very much. Matthew Barson, The Power of Giving Away Power is on sale in all good bookshops, which you obviously must buy in the bookshop now, uh, as well as another website. Thank you so much, Ed. Thanks for listening to this episode of Vasey View, a production of Kindred Media.